Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by my ghost sponsors, Petroletra Financial Services, the purveyor of the finest outsourced oil and gas accounting, and the location of my day job where I serve as the VP of Sales and Marketing. We do a PAR, JIP, regulatory reporting, revenue dispersal, land, division order work, you name it. If it's upstream or midstream accounting, we got you covered. There'll be a link in the show notes to our website. And the second is friend of the show, Arc Media. Arc Media helps connect companies with their customers through digital marketing like websites, social media, Media ads, SEO, basically outsourced marketing. They don't have a. Uh, if you don't have a marketing team or you need some extra firepower for your existing team, Arc Media is who you want to call. The web address will also be in the show notes. It's not my company, but they have worked for me in the past, and they're great people to work for, and I highly recommend them. All right. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of a reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. And tonight, I got a nice dark roast. Let's have the inaugural sip here. Ooh, that's actually quite warm. I'm going to let that cool down for a minute. I just poured that, so we're going to let that settle. That uh, would burn me if I tried to drink it too much right now. So we're just going to let that chill out for a minute. All right, so tonight, uh, as we're recording, it is July 3rd, which means tomorrow is Independence Day here in the U.S. Uh, So, uh, you know, if you're in the U.S., happy uh, 4th of July, happy Independence Day. If you're anywhere else in the world, you don't really care, but there you are. And um, if you're in uh, the U.K., hey, we're the one that got away. What can you do? All right, so tonight's uh, episode, we are going to talk about... As I promised before, the South African energy crisis, which I mentioned a few episodes back and um, uh, decided we really need to kind of deep dive into this thing a little bit and kind of figure out what the hell was going on because I was uh, properly astounded by the stories I was hearing. Now, if you recall, uh, the impetus for this was that the rich in South Africa were in the capital city drilling wells for water in their yards. You may be wondering, If you didn't listen to that episode, why would the rich be drilling water wells? Well, because there's a massive water shortage. And the reason there's a massive water shortage is because there is a massive power shortage in South Africa. You see, on the high plains in South Africa, where Pretoria and Johannesburg capital are, um, there's not a lot of water up there. The water is pumped up from the uh, more... Uh, the the more water-rich lowlands. The issue is that with the electricity cuts, the water pumps aren't working, and so water is not getting up to the highly populous cities in the plains. So 
This begs the question, why are there massive power cuts, sometimes as much as 16 hours a day happening? Um, And when I say they're happening frequently, I mean something to the tune of uh, over 200 days a year, South Africa is doing power cuts. Uh, And again, anywhere from four to 16 hours a day without electricity across all sectors, hospitals, businesses, homes, doesn't really matter. They're just cutting power. They're doing what they call load shedding, which is a very soft term, but we'll go with that. So what's what's happening here? How do we get to this point? So I'm going to ask the four questions that I always love to ask when we come up against a problem like this. The first question is, what the hell is uh, actually going on? Second question is, how the fuck did we get here? Third question, how big a deal is this? And lastly, where do we go from here? So let's get into question one, what the hell is actually going on? So South Africa is heavily reliant on coal power. And when I say heavily reliant, I mean 85% of South African power is generated from burning coal. Now, don't get me wrong, coal has its uses, absolutely. But at that higher percentage, is that really the best option for fuel? There's all the issues of potential pollution and illness caused by working in coal mines and just the danger of working in coal mines. Uh, And like I said, I'm not suggesting we don't have any coal anywhere, but coal at that level does have a lot of issues in general. But that's almost beside the point for the massive amounts of corruption that they're dealing with, and we will get to that. But yes, South Africa has one of the highest amounts of people to the tune of thousands of them dying from black lung and uh, lung-related issues. And uh, weirdly enough, if you look at a map, they're all concentrated around the coal mines. Not looking great. And part of the problem is that unlike a lot of the rest of the world, in even China, there is a lot less regulation of the coal mines and a lot less safety precautions um, for the surrounding countryside. And that is showing some pretty devastating and damning medical data as far as uh, who's being affected by this and just how bad it is. But this is the kind of place where Natural gas would actually be a pretty massive upgrade in terms of safety and cleanliness and and all of that. I mean, and I know there's a a whole argument of ah, natural gas, it's not a renewable, it's not a green resource and all this. Listen, if you're in, I don't care what side of that argument you're on. If you were in South Africa, natural gas is 100% a more green alternative. And, uh, you know, it's almost too bad that the Empowerment Alliance isn't sponsoring this episode because, boy, this is the kind of message that they would be behind. Um, so, hey, if you, you my T-boys are out there still listening to this, hope you enjoy it. Here it is. You should probably go sell some natural gas to them. But anyway, here we are. This is a country that is 85% reliant on coal, and it is absolutely insane what's going on with their energy industry. Um, okay, so it has been on the political agenda in South Africa to move very aggressively to wind and solar power. They supposedly have a lot of sunlight, and they supposedly have a lot of wind, and supposedly those two things combined could replace coal. Now, yes, there's all the arguments of whether or not it can really take on that much of a load and all these other things, but that's, again, really quite beside the point at this juncture. Uh, At any rate, they've received, South Africa, a lot of global pressure and even financial aid from other parts of the world 
to transition away from coal. This has been something that's been talked about since the mid to late uh, 2010s and something that South Africa tacitly and actually enthusiastically agreed to do around a decade or less ago. But it's proven to be quite problematic. You see, South Africa is currently engaged, um, like I said, in a rather euphemistic term called load shedding, which is basically a nicer way of uh, saying what ERCOT did to Texas during Snowvid with the non-rolling, rolling blackouts, which, yes, I'm still bitter about every time I have to think about them. At any rate, this has caused a cascade effect of bad shit. Aside from massive power outages, the water pumps aren't working, schools are getting shut down so kids aren't getting proper education, which will have ripple effects down the road, and all these kinds of issues. The other thing is South Africa has massive issues with illegal coal mines being operated, state-owned coal mines being robbed or even sabotaged by the workers, and the workers' unions who are actively and openly a part of this problem. And from a corporate perspective, the CEOs and politicians have been threatened or killed whenever they say they're going to clean up the energy sector in South Africa. Hell, when the last ESCOM CEO, ESCOM being the state-owned energy company that runs all this this coal stuff, uh, said he was going to clean up the graft, the energy minister of South Africa actually got on TV and declared the CEO to be a traitor, and only days later... He was poisoned with arsenic in his own office. Yeah. And when asked about, the energy minister said that, one, I didn't personally see him get poisoned, so I can't comment on it, but it sounds like a personal problem. That's a pretty cold-blooded reply to uh, someone getting poisoned in their own office after you called them a traitor on national TV and you're a member of the government. That's a bit concerning. Okay. Meanwhile, the same CEO who would go on to make a mostly full recovery and then resign his post and move him and his family the fuck out of South Africa uh, would say that as best he could tell, there was $50 million U.S. stolen or skimmed out of ESCOM every single month. That's a lot of money going to the criminal cartels. And in fact, he went on to say that there were four criminal cartels operating with an ESCOM carving up territories and controlling entire business units among themselves. The fact that in a locked, secured executive suite, he got poisoned with fucking cyanide is a sign of just how powerful these cartels are when he started to go after them. And he's only the latest in a line of about three or four CEOs who have abandoned the post because their families were threatened and... Uh, uh, pets were killed, they were poisoned, you name it, uh, for saying that they were going to clean up the situation and move towards the stated goals of the government of energy transition by, you know, more or less 2030 or uh, whatnot. So this is a big, hairy deal. That's what's going on. Now, the question next becomes, how the fuck did we get here? Okay, so as best I can tell, and there's a a ton of unknowns in this whole storyline. I've spent the past couple of weeks trying to track down the rabbit hole and figure it all out, but it's actually kind of hard to get to the bottom of it because there's just not a lot of publicly accessible data. The South African government has been aggressively against looking into this, just sort of shrugging and saying, it's a real problem we've got here, but hey, what can you do? Um, 
So really, the only source of information you have are oftentimes these executives that have fled the country and are saying what they know, but you can't exactly get in there and examine Ericot's books, and the South African government has surprisingly little interest in looking under that rock. So here's what I've managed to figure out. The big issue starts point blank with there just not being enough capacity having been built to support the booming South African population. Over 50% of the coal plants in the country are over 50 years old, and even the newest plant to come online and be operational was back in 1996. So, with you may recall, back in the 90s, there were some rather massive uh, political changes that happened in South Africa, what with the fall of apartheid and so on and so forth. They kind of had bigger fish to fry, and the power grid never really managed to make it to the top of their list as a serious concern. Back in 1999, ESCOM made several appeals to the government to build some new power plants on the grounds that the power plants they had were quite old and they suspected uh, were at that point they were hitting the absolute maximum of what they could handle from a power generation standpoint. The government said no. It's a matter of record. They just were not interested in investing in, uh, in new stuff. Now, around the late uh, 2000s, they would turn around and say, okay, we'll invest in two new power plants. But by that point, two power plants was not going to cover the difference that they were hitting, and the first rounds of load shedding were started, although, granted, those rounds of load shedding were significantly less than what's happening today. So, the first problem is the coal plants are quite old, and there were never enough of them, okay? Then you have the criminal element, and this is where it gets really fascinating. I mean, how did the criminal element get involved in such a way that there were eventually four cartels running chunks of ESCOM? How did that happen? Well, as best I can tell, and again, the data is sketchy because it's effectively all second- and third-hand sources. Mm. There we go. There's the, there's the proper inaugural sip. Um, but as best I can tell, it started with the trucks. Okay, so you have coal mines and you have the coal plants. And effectively, the coal has to get from the mines to the plants. I mean, it's not much different if we simplify it down to a first purchaser system with oil and gas, say, here in the States. You have uh, the producer out in the field, pump the oil, it's going in a tank, a truck pulls up, boom, you pop the oil into the truck, the first purchaser drives it off to the refinery or wherever it goes from there, and it gets sold off and gets refined, and boom, it goes further uh, further downstream. All sounds awesome. Effectively, you have a similar kind of setup. Trucks pull up to the coal plant, they get the coal, they cart it off to the coal, uh, or they, the coal mine, then they cart it off to the coal plant, it gets uh, sold off there, bada boom, bada bang. They've, uh, they've moved the coal. So what the criminal uh, cartels started out doing was realizing that on the somewhat unpoliced roads of some of these back uh, country provinces of South Africa where these coal mines were at, good old-fashioned highway robbery. You pull over a truck uh, that's carrying a full load of coal. You skim 10% of the coal out of their truck into your truck, and then you send them on their way. When the next truck comes by, you stop them at gunpoint. You take 10% of their coal. And you do this 10 times, you got a full truckload of coal yourself that you paid nothing for. You roll up to the uh, coal plant, sell it off to them, and then you go back and do it all over again. This is basically um, how the cartels seem to have gotten started in the energy system. Now, eventually, they got to the point where they were effectively just uh, rolling up to... 
coal mines um, and just stealing a dump truck of coal right then and there at gunpoint. And then they got smart and realized, well, hey, we can just pay off the union workers and eventually buy our way into the unions. Then we don't even have to roll up there with guns. We just show up there with our truck, tell them who we are. They give us a load of coal. We give them a cut. We go to the plant. We sell it. We got money. Boom. We're rocking and rolling. By the way, I suppose for legal reasons I should put this disclaimer out there. I'm not suggesting that any enterprising criminal elements in the U.S. attempt to do this exact same scheme with first purchasers. Don't do that. That's officially the top tip and position of this podcast. Um But anyway, back to South Africa and their more or less first purchaser scheme. So at some point, what began to happen is the criminal cartels actually had enough money. They began just straight up taking over and or opening their own illegal coal mines that had no kind of um, government sanction or contract, and then controlling entire fleets of trucks. So at this point, they have a significant amount of the coal generation directly under their control. So they're making all the money. At this point, it made it a lot easier for them to start buying off executives in ESCOM and and, and getting their way in there. And eventually, people in ESCOM just became full-on members of these cartels. And one thing led to another. And within 20 years, you've got entire business units that are effectively nothing more than shell organizations within the company that are criminal enterprises. This, of course, makes it really, really hard to clean up because – There's so much money sliding out to all these other entities. Again, $50 million a month. A month. U.S. dollars, not fucking pesos, not, um, you know, not rubles, but we're talking about, you know, 50 million U.S. dollars a month in graft. Yeah, there's way too much. There's way too many people getting way too much money who are way too invested in this. So that's how this whole thing got started. That's how the fuck we got here. Now, let's couple that with the political angle of it. The South African government was all chomping at the bit at the idea of doing energy transition and moving over to wind and solar, which sounded really good. And in 2020, a human climate agreement with South Africa gave very strong incentives for them to do just that. But the problem is those those incentives were... Not the carrot, they were the stick. If South Africa doesn't have significant energy transition by 2030, they will be hit with some rather severe economic sanctions by the climate-aware global community. And as a result, the a group of politicians and the CEOs of ESCOM have been aggressively trying to do this. The CEOs of ESCOM have been invested in this because, well, their power grid is ancient and not large enough to support what they're doing and ultimately failing due to a very bevy of mechanical issues. And at this point, the criminals have embedded themselves within the maintenance unions. And so now those are taking huge cuts off the top for maintenance work. And conveniently enough, the workers unions are sabotaging power plants to ensure that the maintenance unions get the contracts to come in and do the work and their pockets just keep getting lined. And even though the government was on board with this energy transition, in the past couple of years, they've really walked back their interest in doing this. A lot of key politicians and members of parliament down there have very aggressively walked back their position on energy transition, again, calling people that wanted a traitor. Um, And even a lot of the ones who are vocal for it have started to walk back their support and become a lot more 
if nothing else, indifferent. Why? I don't know. Probably because their pockets are getting lined by the cartels. So that's the other contributing factor of how the fuck we got here. Um, If they don't make this transition, there's huge, huge economic impacts for the nation's trade relationships with other countries. But the problem is there are way too many people that are making way too much money off this industry, which another segment of society is trying to kill. So this leads us an impasse. And at the end of the day, if um, we know anything about cartels, when it comes to their money, you don't fuck with it. Because they will do virtually anything to ensure they stay in business. After all, they're a criminal cartel. It's not exactly like they have a 401k that they're going to be cashing in when they retire. This golden goose is all they've got, and they're going to milk the bastard all the way till the end. They're going to ride this torpedo like slim pickings to the end of the film. They do not care. They are not thinking big picture. They are not thinking economic issues with trade and all of that. They're just going to milk it. So, in short... That is how the fuck we got here. So, the question is, how big a deal is this power shedding and what's going on? Well, the short answer is it's a really, really, really big deal. And the reason is, one, when your state-run energy corporation is a four-way orgy of competing criminal gangs, that's kind of a problem. That certainly makes it hard to clean things up, and it certainly makes it hard to do any level of transition at all to anything if everyone's invested in coal. And it also doesn't help that a significant portion of your actual coal transportation and production comes straight out of the mines and trucks owned by criminal elements. I mean, effectively, the problem at the very root is that these cartels have way too much power in the production of the source of your energy. Never mind the fact that it's wormed its way all the way up into the corporate echelons and even the C-suite at this point. So, obviously that's one big deal. The other big deal is that with the failing power grid and the fact that there seems to be no actionable plan to solve the issue, you've got huge economic loss. I mean, in the past year, South Africa's... uh, Population has grown at a higher percentage than their economy or their GDP. That is a recipe for not just a recession, but a full-on depression. So, uh, then you get to the fact that lots of people have died when power just randomly cuts off at hospitals. Lots of schools get canceled when there's no power in the school in the middle of a hot summer or a cold winter, which means there's an entire generation of children not receiving a proper education, which will only have further negative ripple effects across the economic and sociological development of this country for literally decades from now, we are on a path for South Africa to not just crumble, but spiral into complete pandemonium. They are on the path to becoming a failed nation state if something's not done. That's how big a deal it is, really. It's a big, hairy deal. So, now the question is, What can be done? Well, unfortunately, the scope of the problem is so incredibly massive that, as many of the problems we deal with on this show, there aren't a whole lot of really easy solutions. First off, to the international community and to the uh, international community that is really, really pushing South Africa to be the spearheading transition, 
uh, on to renewables, let me say a few things. You need to pump the fucking brakes, okay? That's the first thing. South Africa, you have to understand the geopolitical situation. You have to understand that there are a lot of really bad things happening. There are a lot of very corrupt individuals and very key positions that have very little incentive to move towards energy transition, and they have a whole lot of incentive to keep coal around forever, or at least until they die. So that's thing number one. The global energy transition community needs to understand the situation. You cannot snap your fingers and all of a sudden everyone in South Africa is just going to magically get it and want this energy transition. A lot of the population does want it, but too much of the population is tied into the criminal element and the money of coal. So that's problem number one. Got to walk that back and understand it. Having hard-ass sanctions on this country with these deadlines in 2030 and so on are not going to help them get the job done because, quite frankly, it can't be done. It's too big of a job and the mess that they have to clean up to say nothing of the work that goes into reconfiguring a power grid to run on solar and electric, but just the fact that you have to get everyone bought in and willing to do this without sabotaging it or having billions of dollars a year skimmed out in criminal payouts is a whole issue that has to cleaned up before you can even tackle energy transition in a meaningful way. The other thing I would say that can be done here is look for less drastic ways to transition South Africa from coal. Is it ideal for South Africa to be getting 85% of their power from coal? The answer is no, obviously. But going from coal to wind and solar is a big jump in a decade. And to have hard-ass deadlines on that is not doing them any favors, aside from the technological feat of it being done. What if there's a middle way? What if we can stair-step this for South Africa? At the end of the day, the technical skills that go into working in a coal mine are very far removed than the technical skills of working in a wind farm or working in a solar farm. These are different things. And while a portion of that workforce can transition to those roles, a lot of those folks are not seeing the vision. A lot of those folks look at this transition and go, I will be out of a job the moment they do this. I've got to get mine now while I still can. Okay, so you've got to find a way to make cleaning things up and transitioning to something more profitable than plundering the current system. And so far, all anyone's been willing to do is push for moving the system, not finding a way to incentivize people to be more interested in transition rather than plunder. And the other thing is the way you do that, as best as I can tell, is to have a less extreme transition. The timeline needs to be longer, and you need to stair-step it. Go from coal to perhaps natural gas, and then from natural gas, set targets for doing your transition to whatever, whether it be solar, wind, nuclear. But you also have to have certain programs set aside so that all these people, again, 85% of your energy comes from coal, a large portion of your population is employed by this. What are they going to do for work? Keep in mind, there was a lot less demand for carriage drivers after the automobile came out. Just not as many of them out there anymore, is there? Same problem these guys are facing. This is what's going through their head and why the criminal element has such a strong appeal to them. So you've got to look at it and you've got to find a way to incentivize them and to have something for them to do to transition them into being able to sustain themselves, take care of themselves, and have a profitable life 
that doesn't involve the cartels being the ones funding their pensions, so to speak. Okay. So, the other problem, and perhaps the biggest problem for any of this to work, is going to be cleaning up the actual government itself. So far, the government is deeply in the pockets of these cartels. Their election funds, their campaign finances, uh, or even just the fact that if they disagree with it publicly, they could be subject to attempted murder is a big issue. Most of these politicians are not going to be going out of their way to piss off cartels. At the end of the day, given a choice, any politician, if given the choice between saying, well, you can piss off uh, the European Union by not transitioning fast enough and face trade sanctions, or the cartel will come by and murder your wife and children, they're going to take their chances with the trade sanctions from the EU. Right, They're not going to have the cartel show up with a machete at their front door and say, time to collect. And I think it's not just politicians. Almost any of us would probably make that call if forced to make it at gunpoint. And let's be very clear, for a great number of these politicians, it's either a threat of violence or it's money in their pocket. Perhaps both. How do you overcome that? And that one's not as easy. That's not something that I can just blather off an idea into the microphone and it's magically solved. At some point, the people of South Africa are going to have to do a clean sweep of their entire governing institution, install people that truly want to clean things up and are willing to take those chances and aggressively do so. Also, they're probably going to have to rise up and just whack the cartels, but they're not going to do that because they're too incentivized by the cartels to keep them around, or at least a large number of them. So at the end of the day, you have a situation where either extreme measures are going to have to be taken to clean things up and correct the problems that have arisen, or alternately, the state is just going to have to collapse into absolute chaos and get rebuilt from the ashes. Neither of them are easy paths, and one of them is way worse than the other, but certainly seems like the most likely outcome. I don't know which it'll be, but I'm certainly hoping for the best. Having gone through what I considered a torturous four days without power and water during Snowvid, thanks to ERCOT, uh, I can sympathize a little bit. I get it. It was really unpleasant. It was deeply inconvenient. I didn't like it. Also, I haven't been dealing with it, I will say, for 200 days this year. Just today, I was in my very nicely air-conditioned home with running water. No problem at all. So, yeah. This is not a good thing for them, and I do feel bad, and I hope it gets sorted out. But we need to understand globally, and especially you folks that are hardcore pushing for Africa or South Africa to do this super aggressive move with their their energy transition, they are not in a position to do it. And while it may be a good idea, there are bigger problems that have to be solved before that can be an option. There just are. There are people's lives and livelihood that are literally endangered by trying to make this happen. And good intentions are what the road to hell is paved in. So let's find a way for a middle path to stair-step South Africa, and let's hope the people are willing to fight to clean up their government and get rid of their cartels in order to get there. Beyond that, someone smarter than me is going to have to solve the problem. But 
Hopefully you found this situation to be just as incredibly fascinating as I did. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this one. I'll be back next week, of course. We'll see what uh, what tickles my fancy then. But in the meantime, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you, I'll never clean up my act. Catch you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Thank you.